reading um, the Chronicles of Narnia to the girls for the first time, which is a big deal for me because I love those books. We've just arrived at the Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's house. Do you remember the story at all? Well, they talk to these four little kids about having spent generations in winter and eagerly anticipating Aslan's return where winter would be set aside. And that's appropriate. I didn't time it that way. It just worked out. I hate waiting. I do. I hate it. And it's always been this way. When you know something is coming, especially when that thing is good, especially when you've set your hope in that thing, man, waiting is the worst. Two things happen to me every time I'm forced to wait for something I'm really looking forward to. First, I begin to imagine the arrival of that thing, experiencing it and enjoying it and celebrating it. I imagine what my life would look like with that thing a part of it. Man, when the wait is over, boy, oh boy, won't that be nice. And then always, immediately thereafter, I begin to reflect on my life as it is without that thing with an extraordinary degree of dissatisfaction. When I envision a life that includes what I'm looking forward to, that vision looks just so much better than my life right now. You know that feeling, like just a moment ago you were fine with life as it is, but when you begin to imagine life as it might be, all, all of a sudden the paint is dull and the fenders are rusty and the food is bland. We call it discontentment. And it's the sharp edge of hope. And man, when you're waiting, you feel the weight of it. Today we're going to talk about hope and waiting. Because the people of Israel have been waiting, waiting, waiting for their true king. Generations awaited the long-expected king of Israel Generations singing prophecies of His character, His mercy, and His might. Bedtime stories passed from generation to generation speaking of a just prince who fights with the might of the Lord God, a redeemer of the weak and the broken. As a pretender sat on the throne, and as His Tyranny fostered fear among the faithful. Imagine what the whispers might be like. Imagine the rumors traded in alleyways. We'll meet that king today. And I want you to feel in this passage what the people of Israel must have felt when the oil trickled down the beard of David. If we're going to feel that anticipation, we need to start from the beginning of the story. You you may remember that the story of Samuel begins with a barren woman. Her name was Hannah, and she was broken and ashamed. Like the people of Israel, she was hurting and without hope. 
like the people of Israel, she was mocked and abused. And like the people of Israel, she was dearly loved by her husband. In a moment of desperation, Hannah cries out to God and she asks for a son. Her her cries were heard and she conceived and she gave birth to Samuel. A gift from God, a son promised To God, Samuel was a very special child. From his birth, Samuel's life was devoted to God. And on the day Hannah dedicated her firstborn son, she wrote a song to God. She wrote prophecies. Prophecies of hope for the poor and healing for the broken and defense of the weak. She wrote prophecies of justice for the abused, of destruction of the tyrannous wicked. And she wrote of a coming king. A king who would crush the cruelty of the powerful, who would restore the oppressed, and who would guard the feet of the faithful. Hannah's prophecy was clear. A king was coming who would fight with the mercy and might of God. And the people remembered this promise with great anticipation. They need only wait for the coming king. The words of Hannah's prophecy were spoken when Samuel was only a young child. Years passed. Decades passed without a sign of the coming king. Now, unfortunately, the people of Israel hate waiting as much as I do. Like Sarah, impatient for the promise of God, demanding an illegitimate son, they made their own way. The people demanded a king. And God in His wrath said, Okay. The pretender king of Israel was crafted in the nation's image. Just as the people envisioned, he was tall and handsome and strong. But he was a coward and a tyrant and a fool. He didn't understand that the only hope of the people of Israel is the God who bought them. The God who brought them out of Egypt and the God who placed them in the promised land. He didn't understand, nor did he care to. The pretender king's tyranny drove Israel further into rebellion. And as years passed under the tyranny of the pretender king, the people remembered Hannah's song. And the faithful of Israel looked forward to a true king, the promised king, because they knew that God doesn't forsake His people. And at the darkest moments of the pretender king's reign, Samuel himself renewed the great promise of the coming king. Samuel, whose birth and whose dedication and whose intercession were monuments to the faithfulness of God, Samuel again renewed the great prophetess song of his mother. A true king was coming. And this time, at the right time, the king would be crafted after God's own heart. They need only wait just a while longer. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 16. Everybody there? Let's read together. The Lord said to Samuel, 
How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse of Beth, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So this passage starts out with a good question. How long will you grieve over Saul since I rejected him from being king over Israel? And I don't want to blow past that question because I think it's there for a reason. It's more than just a hinge to pivot to the next story, which is sometimes how it's treated. Samuel, you may remember, is doing the right thing to grieve over Saul. Samuel's grief is just like God's grief. God regrets Saul. God reflects on the ascension and reign of Saul with pain. The Spirit, if you remember, the Spirit was involved in that work. God sent Samuel to anoint Saul. The Spirit fell on him. God worked mightily through him. But Saul has forsaken God and he has been rejected. Now God laments the pretender king. And Samuel was remarkable because his disposition at every step mirrors God's. His grief mirrored God's grief. His wrath mirrored God's wrath. And the last glimpse we get of Saul, just prior to this story, was his faithful imitation of the disposition of God. Look back just a few sentences to the end of chapter 15. So Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And note this, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So when we reflected on the disposition of Samuel, this grieving disposition, we did so with admiration and with expectation. This is a heart after God's heart. And this heart foreshadows the coming king of Israel whose will and whose ways will likewise mirror the will and ways of God. So so then we have to deal with this question. How long will you grieve over Saul? Look, there's a time for grief over sin. There is a time for regret And grief over sin and rebellion. We've seen that. We've seen Samuel's faithfulness in this arena. But here we learn that the season for grief is temporary. And now it's over. God's plan for the redemption of his people culminates in the true king of Israel. And while there is a season to mourn over the rebellion of God's people... While there's a time to weep over the sins of Israel who prematurely demanded a king like the nations, that season of mourning has passed. Now it's time to prepare for the true king. You know, when I was reading this, it struck me that often we become preoccupied with the past. Past sin. Past foolishness. I recall a story that John Piper tells about an old man who came to faith Late in life. And this guy was weeping and crying out, I've wasted it. I've wasted my life. That, that man was right to mourn. 
And there's a season for that type of mourning. We ought to be troubled by sin. But ultimately, that isn't what we've been called to do. We've been called to prepare for the coming kingdom. So if you find yourself in an indefinite state of reflection, perpetually mourning over past sin, stop it. How long will you grieve? The king is coming and we must prepare. Now, I'm not saying that this is the point of this passage because this passage is not about you or me, about how you and I reflect on our past sins, but what this passage is about is God's single-minded obsession with the kingdom. I, I want you to take a look back at those verses we just read and note God's kingdom focus. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Stop mourning. Why stop? Because I've rejected Saul as king. Fill your horn with oil and go. Why go? Because I have provided for myself a better king. Single-minded kingdom focus. At every moment preparing for the coming kingdom. Every step is a step closer to the coming kingdom. Okay, keep reading. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to that sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So apparently a lot has happened since we last met Samuel and Saul on the battlefield. Just a moment ago, Saul was groveling before Samuel, pleading for his favor. But now Samuel is convinced that if he deviates at all from his typical priestly duties, Saul will murder him. He will kill me, he says. And God doesn't say, no, he won't. So Samuel's assessment of this situation is accurate. See, something has shifted in Saul. He knows now, you see, not only that God's rejected him, he's known that for a long time, but now he's connected the dots. And he knows that God has chosen a better man And he knows that God will send Samuel to anoint that man. So Saul supposes that if he can kill the priest of God before he reaches the true king of Israel, his tyranny might continue uninterrupted. Behold the spectacle of Saul's rebellion. So I want you to notice something here. Something that I think is profound. At the beginning of this story, the sins of Saul seemed almost noble. Errors of calculation, simple, good-hearted mistakes. When he hid in the luggage, you might say that, we knew, that he knew he was weak. Perhaps you might even call it misguided humility. When he offered the sacrifice, you might call that foolish. He broke the law, yeah, but only to appeal to God. His sin was one of timing, really. Such is the disposition of many who have read Saul. Read the commentaries and you'll find many who call Saul 
foolish, but only a few who call him corrupt. But you must keep reading. Because as you turn the pages, Saul's sin evolves. His sin consumes him. And it will only get worse. I think this is the way sin works. Look at the beginning. Your sin might seem innocent or laughable or even admirable. People will call it a quirk, a silly habit. Some may even applaud you. Some might call it a mistake, but few will condemn you for it. To some, your sin may even seem bold or daring. As it grows, you might start dismissing it as a minor character flaw, nothing terribly inconsequential or terribly consequential. The point is that sin evolves. Flirtation becomes lust. Lust becomes adultery. Sin will grow. It will consume you. The anger of a bully left unchecked becomes the genocide of a tyrant. And the sinful quirks of a young prince left unchecked becomes the murderous rage of a tyrant king. I tell you this to warn you, yes, but I also want to encourage you. The people who love you the most are the ones who will call you out when your sin is little. Quirk stage sin. The mark of true love is the willingness to call you out when your sin is little. You want to know who really loves you? Think back to the last time you felt like someone was making a mountain out of a molehill. That's true love. That's burden-carrying, Christ-like, dying-to-self-love. To look at a guy and say, Man, I could be off here, but you said these things. I'm afraid it might be sin. I could be wrong, but you did this and it could be sin. That's Christ emulating love because that sin left unchecked will make you a monster beyond imagining. When your wife gives you that look and it drives you nuts because you know she's seeing something that you don't think really is that big of a deal. Praise God for that. Because she could have left it alone. Amen. I was hoping for at least one guy to say amen to. It's cool though. She could have left it alone, but she didn't because she cares for you desperately. Enough to die to herself. Enough to ruin a peaceful afternoon. Am I right? Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Surround yourself with people who will catch your sin at quirk stage. When it's still little, it'll be uncomfortable. Because it's hard when people suggest that you've got ugly things going on in your heart. But I'm going to quote Brett Rogers. The worst thing anyone could have ever said about you was said on the cross. Look, your heart was so ugly, so riddled with sin, so full of hate, that you deserved... A brutal execution. So when you admitted your sin and ran to Christ for redemption, you gave up your right to be offended when people suggest that you've got problems. 
Praise God for those who will catch your sin when it's little. Praise God for them. When someone asks you tough questions, brother, you need to weep tears of joy because that person loves you enough to keep your sin from becoming something horrifying. Anyway, Saul's tyranny is now frightening even Samuel. And apparently he's not totally off here because God provides a way for him to go without arousing the suspicion of Saul. Take a heifer to the town of Bethlehem and invite Jesse and his sons. That's twice now we've heard the name of Jesse from Bethlehem. I hope hope your ears perked up just then. And not just because of all the Christmas songs. Do you remember which book precedes Samuel? Do you remember the story of Ruth? A redeemer rescues a widow in her distress. It's a picture of covenant faithfulness and and of hope and of salvation. Boaz is a foreshadow of the true king of Israel. He teaches us what the king will be like who rescues his people, who redeems his bride, who advocates for the sojourner and the weak and the oppressed. And as a reader of the Bible, when you hear Jesse of Bethlehem, you need to think to the end of Ruth and you need to import all of that expectation into this story. Don't miss what's happening here. Throughout the Scriptures, we're getting ever clearer glimpses of the coming King. He'll have a heart like mine. He'll have, he's a defender of the weak. He'll defend the people with the might of God. He'll be covenant faithful, merciful, gracious like Boaz. He'll cling with hope to the God of Israel like Ruth. And as you turn the pages, your anticipation should be building. If you're reading rightly, you'll begin to feel the weight of the waiting. And that's part of the point. For we too wait for a coming King. And if we're waiting well, we should feel the weight of that discontentment. And if we're waiting well, we should be preparing eagerly for His coming Kingdom. Okay, keep reading. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. You may be wondering why the elders of a city in Israel would be trembling before the priest of the God of Israel. There are two possibilities. First, the law dictates that if a murder had taken place within the limits of a city, and if the murderer is, not, is never found out, the people would bear the burden of that sin. So the priest would arrive with a heifer, and that heifer would be slaughtered in the field where the body was found, so that the people of the city didn't bear the guilt 
of that fallen son of Israel. See, when the law was broken in a city, there must be justice. There must be sacrifice. If, if there was no justice, or if there was no sacrifice, the covenant was at risk. God's mercy, His kindness, His love was working for the people when they were within the covenant. Outside of that atoning work, all that remains is wrath against sin. And that's a terrifying place to be if you're a sinner. So in this case, if the elders saw Samuel approaching their town with a heifer, they may have been trembling because they had no idea a murder had occurred in their midst. And that meant that they were under the wrath of God. Now that very well could be a part of what's happening. But I think it's more likely that Samuel's reputation as an agent of God's wrath has gone viral. You remember when Saul and his armies were unwilling to destroy the enemy of God, Samuel asks for a sword. And the bloody mess that unfolded was a reminder to the people. This is what happens when God's wrath vanquishes sin. Imagine that scene. Samuel bearing the sword of fury. Annihilating the enemy of God before the king and his armies. The words that were used are almost difficult to repeat. Hacking. If you don't think Samuel was covered in blood. That image is uncomfortable. Especially if you're a sinner. Now the elders may very well be trembling because Saul's arrival with a heifer or because Samuel's arrival with a heifer means they bear the sin of a murderer. But even if that's the case, the trembling of the elders of Bethlehem would certainly be amplified if Samuel's reputation as the wrath of God embodied had been whispered throughout the promised land. And that would make sense of the question they ask, do you come peaceably? Because if he says no, I'm betting that they run away terrified. But there is no sort of fury here. And Samuel invites them all to join him as he offers sacrifice. And that same invitation he extends to a man named Jesse and to his sons. Okay, keep reading. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. I think think the first thing to note is that Samuel makes the same mistake that the people of Israel made. 
Because his assumption, right here when he says the words, surely the Lord's anointed is before me, his assumption is that Eliab is God's choice for king. Now, we wouldn't have known exactly why Samuel assumed that Eliab was God's choice, except that God looks right into Samuel's heart and he illuminates the inner workings. He says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of of his stature. That's what Samuel had been doing. And that's what the people of Israel had been doing. God says, no, that's not how I work. Mighty, handsome, tall. These are not the qualifications I'm looking for. And listen to his words. The Lord sees not as man sees. He looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's stunning, isn't it? It's a piercing revelation. Now look, the words of God aren't to be taken lightly. He could have said merely, I've rejected him. That's what happens the next six times. But that's not what happens here. He's teaching. And in such terms that his words may be understood broadly, man looks toward The outward appearance, God looks to the heart. I want to explore what that means for a moment. Man looks to the outward appearance. Our evaluation of people is external. We see men and women as the sum of their outward components. How they look, how they speak, how they dress. The details we collect are outward in nature. We look at the cars they drive, the homes they own, the money they make. We read their Facebook posts, their tweets. We listen to the tones of their voices. We pay attention to their skill sets, the words they use. We consider who they work for. All these are outward details. They are visible or audible or tangible. God looks to the heart. God's evaluation of people is internal. He sees motives. He considers thoughts. He notes priorities. God sees hopes and he sees fears and he sees anger and he sees love. He sees obsessions and he sees idols. None of these things, none of them are visible or audible or tangible. Perhaps there are signs And perhaps on a good day, we might be able to read those signs. But the point is that God doesn't need the signs. He sees us for who we really are, despite all of our efforts to appear otherwise. Now, I think that is an exposition of God's words, but I want to talk about their implications. How we relate to people is dictated by our evaluation of outward appearances. Who we speak to and how we speak to them and why we speak to them in the first place and what we say when we speak to them. All of that is dictated by our evaluation of outward appearances. Who we spend time with and how we spend time with them. And why we spend time with them in the first place. And what we do when we spend time with them. All of those decisions are dictated by our evaluation of outward appearances. 
who we elect for office and what we expect of them and how we evaluate their leadership that's all dictated by our evaluation of outward appearances. And that's a problem. Because the implications of God's words are clear. Outward appearances don't always reflect reality. The reason that Samuel seems so confident that Eliab is the coming king is because he's evaluating Eliab according to outward appearances. But God has rejected him because God looks to the heart. The outward appearance is deceptive. And that means the only variables we have to work with are those which are insufficient to truly, truly evaluate people. It's why the people of Israel envied the nations. It's why they rallied behind Saul. It's why the Pharisees were so respected among their generation. It's why the Messiah was expected to come with armies and overthrow the Roman Empire. It's why Christ was rejected. It makes sense of everything that he said. It's why the apostles' teaching was dismissed. Look at these uneducated men. Outward appearance. And it's why the circumcision party nearly tore apart the early church. We look to the outward appearance and we are frequently deceived. Only the heart is the true indicator of reality. And not a one of us can see it, only God. At the very least, that should give you pause. Keep reading. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send him. Send and get him. For we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. So I want to make a a few notes about the words they're using. First, Samuel's question is interesting, isn't it? Are all your sons here? And note what has just happened. God told Samuel that he'd select a king for himself among Jesse's sons. That's pretty straightforward. Samuel invites Jesse and his sons to the sacrifice and consecrates them. Again, pretty straightforward. But here at this point, Samuel has no evidence to believe that Jesse has sons missing. What happens in this moment is that Samuel reviews, as far as he knows, each and every single son of Jesse. And every single one of them were rejected. So what prompts the question is either God has lied... Or Samuel hasn't rightly heard him. Or Jesse didn't actually bring his sons, all of them, to the sacrifice. In other words, Samuel's failure to find a king among Jesse's sons must have been more than a little confusing. And this question is almost an act of desperation because either God lied or Samuel didn't hear him right or a son is missing. And even that isn't likely because Samuel, the prophet and priest of God, invited Jesse to bring all of his sons to a sacrifice. 
And that's an invitation not to be taken lightly. So you ought to be surprised by this turn of events. And it should raise the question, why would Jesse leave a son behind? I think we have a clue here. This word, the word that the ESV translates as youngest, this is the same word as smallest in Hebrew. If you look at the footnote in the ESV, you can see it'll say, or smallest. It's the same word. It's sort of like when we call Grace and Jane the littles. Or when we call Jane little bit. Nobody's confused here. Um, Even if she grew taller than her sisters, there's some parallel between the concepts of youngest and smallest. Now, traditionally, when you're reading the Bible, uh, good rule of thumb, every word means one thing. You'll hear preachers sometimes say, Oh, this word, this word is so magical in Greek. If you hear the words magical or amazing, or it, it, it should give you pause. Often, uh, we'll have preachers say, this word means this thing, and this thing, and this thing, and this thing, and this thing. All together. That, 98% of the time, that's not, that's not what's happening. Every once in a while, though, an author of Scripture will choose a word that means a thing and also a wink. Right? Now, remember when Saul was selected? What was the single defining feature of Saul? You remember? He was tall, man. Not just tall. He was a head taller than everybody else in the kingdom. This, I think, is one of those times where the author says the word, youngest, but he's also winking. See what I mean? What's more is that the connotation of this word in this society was one of insignificance. This is a social and political environment wherein power and blessing and inheritance are passed down to the eldest son. And so being the youngest and smallest son among many sons is a statement of insignificance. There was a reason David wasn't invited to the sacrifice. Someone had to watch the sheep, so it may as well be the least insignificant or the least significant among us. So reflect on these things. A king has been rejected. A tall man, the eldest son of a powerful family in a powerful tribe in Benjamin. The people rallied behind Saul because by all outward appearances, he was perfect. By all outward appearances. But now God sends his prophet to proclaim the true king of Israel. And this kid is the least significant brother in an insignificant family in an insignificant town. The tallest man in Israel has been rejected for the smallest son of Jesse. But God sees not as men see. God sees the heart. And though height and strength were outward features the people sought in a leader, God seeks the smallest boy whose heart is like his own. Now, as a piece of writing, this is brilliant. 
Because what we see play out here in these last few paragraphs is a microcosm of everything that we've been reading for months. This is like a two-scale miniature of what has happened so far in the book of Samuel. Think about it. A king has been promised. A prophet has been sent. The king is expected. Assumptions are made about the tall and the handsome and strong son. But he is rejected. And now they must wait. They must wait for the true king. If it seems familiar, it's because that's what's just happened over the last 15 chapters of Samuel. Now think about this moment. David isn't in the room next door. This is actually a really funny scene. He isn't in a home down the street. He's in the fields with sheep. And if you know anything about shepherds and sheep in the Middle East, you know that he could have gone a long ways away from home. So picture this. The most respected citizens of Bethlehem and Jesse and all of David's older brothers are not even allowed to sit down until David comes. It's a picture of the upside-down kingdom, isn't it? This is the most respected members in a community and all of the oldest brothers and they have to stand until the honored party arrives? The guy they didn't even invite to the party? What I think is happening here is that the author is playing a game. He's telling a story within a story. And he's doing it to teach you the meaning of all the events that preceded this one. By stringing together this narrative about a prophecy and a prophet and a rejected king and a people waiting, the author of Samuel has just pulled back the curtain in a summary. And summaries like this only happen just before the turn. Just before that moment when all the disparate events and details start to come together just before the hero arrives. What the author has just done is kind of like a dramatic surge in a film's score to teach you that something major is about to happen. It's why you know that, like, if you're watching Halloween movies, why you know somebody's about to get hurt. Don't watch Halloween movies, Pretty much all terrible. As readers, we stand there beside the elders of Israel. We stand beside Jesse and his sons. Beside Samuel the prophet, we stand there and we wait with them. Our anticipation for the coming king has built, and it's built, and it's built with theirs. And now we know that all we've read from the prophecy of Hannah to the weeping of Samuel at the rejection of Saul. All of it has led to this point. The story within a story has us on the edge of our seats waiting for the arrival of a shepherd boy just like the people of Israel. The king is coming. Keep reading. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. 
And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Amen. When David arrives, something happens that I didn't expect. The author uses three separate idioms to tell us that he's attractive. He was ruddy. This word literally translated means red. But there's a few possibilities of what's being communicated here. Either he was bronzed by the sun, or he had red hair, which was a rare and attractive feature in the Middle East. And we're told that he had beautiful eyes, and we're told that he was handsome, ruddy, lovely eyes, handsome. Now, if you'll remember, when, I, when we met Saul, I mentioned that Saul's features, tall, strong, and handsome, Those features were features that the nations embraced, evidence that the people were being given what they asked for, a king like the nations. And that's true. So are these words an indictment against David, who is here three times described as beautiful, in the same way that they were an indictment against Saul? No, they aren't. Let me show you why. You don't have to turn there. But I'm going to very quickly jump ahead and read you Goliath's reaction to David. This is just one chapter over. Chapter 17. Goliath's reaction to David. Because I think it communicates the same thing that the passage here communicates. It says, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David... He disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Okay, so Goliath, a mighty man, renowned for his military victories, a seasoned soldier. When Goliath sees David, the shepherd boy, approach, he despises him. Why? For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome. Did you catch that? David's beauty is associated with his youth. And those things are despised by a veteran soldier like Goliath. So the only real parallel that I can think of is a term that was frequently used of rookies in the military. When I was in the army, you had almost to find ways to conceal your age if you were young. Young guys were the problem. They don't know anything. They've never been anywhere. They've never done anything. So if you were a young guy in the army, you worked hard to seem like you weren't young because you're surrounded by men who spent their years training and working and fighting. And you're surrounded by men who depend on the people around them to stay alive. So being young was a liability. It was almost certain that you'd have to fight for the respect of your colleagues. But what was, your, what was worse than merely being young? What was a truly desperate plight? Was being young and pretty. Luckily, I never had this problem. They were called pretty boys. And pretty boys didn't stand a chance. Because if you spend your life in Vietnam and Korea 
and Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq and North Africa, you come home with scars. And those years of sunburns add up. And you've got wrinkles and leather skin and fading tattoos. And then one day walks in an 18-year-old baby who looks like he was cut out of GQ magazine. So not only is your life dependent on this guy who knows less than you've forgotten, but his very presence is a reminder that your sun is setting. The beauty of that guy is a feature of his youth. It's a testimony that he has not yet seen hard days, hasn't fought in battle, hasn't weathered a storm. And it's a reminder that you have, and you're the worser for it. Pretty boys don't make it long in the army. Because there's a real sharp edge to marching beside a guy who's fresh out of high school and pretty. I think that's sort of like what we're seeing here. All the elders of Bethlehem and the prophet of God and Jesse, his father, and all of his older brothers have been forced to stand until the honored party arrives. These men have joined Saul in countless battles. They are weathered. The fact of their survival is a testimony of their vigor and their ingenuity and their strength. These are men who go out every spring to war. They have lived and seen many dark days. And now they're being forced to stand waiting for a very young and very pretty boy. And they associate his youth with his beauty, and both are an indictment against him. Truly, this is an unexpected king. By all outward appearances, he is disqualified. That he wasn't invited to the sacrifice in the first place is a sign that he was rejected by these men from a position of honor. Go watch the sheep, David. Your brothers and I have been invited to a sacrifice. His youth, his position, his physical appearance, all of it means that he's despised and rejected by men. He's despised and rejected by men. But God sees not as men see. God judges the heart. And this is the true King of Israel. One more note about this passage. When David is anointed king, the Spirit of God rushed upon him. Such was the case for Saul, because God empowers those who lead his people. But you should know the difference here. In Saul's case, the Spirit rushed upon him and he prophesies, and that is all. And again later, when rallying the people for battle, the Spirit rushes upon Saul and he fights with the might of God. And that is all. Note what's said about David. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The Spirit's work in David perpetuates. From the day of his anointing, the Spirit rushed upon David. From that day forward, there's a permanence to those words. Daily this king will fight with the might of God. Daily this king will speak the words of God. And daily he will walk in the wisdom of God because of the power of the Spirit which rushed upon him from that day forward. 
Are you starting to see the shadows? A prophet, son of a barren woman, an impossible birth, a prophet set apart from youth whose life is dedicated to the work and worship of God from his womb. This prophet speaks of a coming king who will raise up the weak and who will crush the wicked. Who does that remind you of? John, the prophet, calls the people of God to repent just like Samuel. John, the prophet, calls them to prepare for a better kingdom just like Samuel. John, the prophet, seeks the one who is come just like Samuel. God speaks to John, the prophet, opens his eyes and tells him, this is the one, just like he did to Samuel. The coming King Jesus is anointed with the waters of baptism, just as David was anointed with oil. Just as the Spirit rushed upon David, the Spirit of the Lord descends on Christ in the form of a dove and dwells on Him from that day forward. And all who are present are overwhelmed at the honor bestowed on the son of a carpenter, just as they were struck by the honor bestowed on the youngest son of a shepherd. Guys, the true king of Israel is coming. He's bought us. He's preparing a kingdom. He's on his way. All of our time, all of our time in Samuel is wasted if you choose not to take note of this one fact. The book is calling you to prepare for the coming king. It's the point of a book. It's the point of the scriptures to teach you of a coming king who will rescue and restore the least of these, who will crush the wicked and who will set his people in a forever kingdom. We, too, like the elders of Israel, await the coming king. He has been anointed, he has purchased his people, and he is preparing his kingdom. The wait for the coming king is nearly over. May we be ready for his return. Amen? Let's pray together.